This podcast was made possible thanks to Drama Victoria. Hello and welcome to this very special episode of The Aside, where we come to you live, live, live from Jumpstart Conference 2020. In today's episode, you will hear from Ian Sinclair. He is the keynote speaker at Jumpstart Conference 2020. Huge thanks go to the Drama Victoria team for coordinating and organising such great speakers. The first voice you hear on the recording is Andrew Byrne introducing our keynote speaker. Please note that this episode was not recorded in the studio, so the audio quality is not as high as it usually is. And so, without any further ado, I bring you Ian Sinclair at Jumpstart 2020. Um, and now, it's my pleasure to introduce our keynote speaker for today. Ian Sinclair is well recognised as one of Australia's finest directors of actors in performance, consistently helping them generate empowered, sophisticated and dignified work. A graduate of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and King's College London, Ian has had a rich and successful career alternating between bold new plays and the classics both here and overseas. Before his appointment to 16th Street, Ian was a senior dramaturg at Playwriting Australia as well as directing for STC, Belvoir, MTC and Queensland Theatre, as well as outside of the mainstream paradigm, creating top-level independent and mid-level professional productions. Ian's award-winning work as a director and dramaturg honours actors and writers and guides them back to each other at the centre of the art form. Please welcome Ian Sinclair. Oh, good morning, and uh, thank you very much, Andrew, for the lovely welcome and also for the acknowledgement um, of country. And thank you very much to uh, Susan as well and to Drama Victoria for inviting me along to share my passion and my perspective on this extraordinary art form with you this morning. So, as Andrew pointed out, we're on Bunwaran land of the Kulin Nation. And there are buildings on top of it right now. And we don't get our food from this place immediately. And so it can be hard for us to go beyond the formalities of acknowledgement sometimes, especially for those of us who are non-Indigenous. Um, we're, we're dutiful and we're respectful quite often. I find myself in this position regularly. Um, but I would also find myself wondering at just how much I am in contact with the depth and the meaning of acknowledgments as they as they are made, especially when the um, when the truth of it and the history of it is so clear and so explicit and so universally recognised. Um, so, how do we actually live that acknowledgement? How do we live and experience that um, when we hear it? The reason I bring that up is that it's, it's going to point towards what I'd like to talk to you in um, about dramatic art today. Um, so last year, I worked on a play uh, here in Melbourne called Bottomless. It was written by Dan Lee. Um, and I was working alongside a number of eminent First Nation actors, uh, Mark Cole-Smith, Margaret Harvey, and um, Uncle Jack Charles, the great Uncle Jack Charles. Um, and at the beginning of rehearsals, I'm very ashamed to say that I, I quite honestly didn't quite know what to do um, when it came to acknowledgement of country in, in such eminent company. Um, I'd done many acknowledgements before, 
But on this occasion, I, I found myself feeling nervous and faltering and white. And uh, as a result, thoroughly, like the, 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 the acknowledgement I gave was thoroughly unremarkable. And I still carry the sting of it to this day. Um, I mispronounced the names, uh, as we all do. I started, and I generally felt like a bit of a fraud. Um, and I was. Margaret and Mark, who were there with me, were very gracious and they helped me through my failed pronunciations and guided me through the rest of the acknowledgement very graciously. Um, but I was mortified at the time because I suddenly realized that while I respected and understood the importance and, uh, of an acknowledgement of country, actually I had no lived experience, the, the controlling idea of what, what was being talked about. Uh, and that as a dramaturg, and a director, uh, somebody whose job is actually to bring life to script. Um, I failed in my very first encounter, you know, uh, as, a, as a director. It's not getting the script right, you, you could say, is um, a major problem for a pre professional theatre director, <coughs> especially one with a colonial African-English accent like the one I've got. Um, so it turns out later on that Uncle Jack turned up, um, he, he was scheduled to rehearse uh, with us two weeks later. And so I sort of sat in the room with that and we, we, we got on with the business of, of conducting rehearsals. Things went very nicely. Um, and then when Jack turned up um, as a living custodian and an elder of the literal land that we were stood on and literally the land and the place that we were rehearsing, um, of course, he naturally fell straight into um, uh, a welcome to country. It was, needless to say, a little bit different to mine. He sat comfortably and he took the time to take each one of us in. And he gently, as the, those of you who have seen Jack or met Jack in his inimitable way, would just look at each person and go, yes, good, g'day, hi, how's it going? And he took the time to, to soak all of us up beforehand until he eventually quite casually said, well, here we are on the land of my people. Um, we'll share a few yarns and hopefully we'll all understand each other a little bit better by the end of it. And then Jack asked us each individually where we were from. And then he told us that what he knew about the exact place that we were stood on, what it was like before the buildings were put on top of it. And he helped us relate to the real events that his people had witnessed in this literal location, here and now. And he awakened us to the continuous unbroken line that he represented, starting from that present moment that we were in, and then going backwards in a handshake, back deep in, through the generations, into the millennia, the uncounted millennia of human consciousness that existed and continued to exist on that very spot. So, what Jack did was help all of us understand the importance of acknowledgement of country because for the first time I properly experienced it in the present moment as an interpersonal event, uh, connecting me with him and all of us in that room to the past, present and to the future. And the way Uncle, did, Uncle Jack did that, of course, was to render the idea of country, to render the idea of acknowledgement of country which we do a lot now, but he rendered it into a dramatic event. He rendered it into the art form that we were doing. 
and by doing so, we sat through a very small play before we began rehearsals for the other one. And as a result, we were unified and we were changed by it. And that's, I'd like to argue, um, why I'm here with you today to talk to you, is the astonishing power that this particular art form has and, um, and why it does have that power. So here we are. We're right here, right now, and we're right in this room, breathing the same air on this land as guests. And every single one of us here also represents an unbroken line. Every single one of us. An unbroken line going right through our foremothers and our forefathers, right back to the birth of life itself. It's kind of an extraordinary thought, isn't it? I recently had a child five years ago, and my, and my mum made the point that if, if you don't have a child, that continuous line, right to the point where the first cell um, divided, gets broken on your line. It's an extraordinary thought, but what that does also mean is that if you turn that way, you have an inherited, literal connection, not only to your, to your human foremothers and forefathers, but you also have it to your mammalian ones and your reptile ones going right, right back, literally, really, to the, to the birth of time itself. It's quite an extraordinary thought. Um, and that's where I'd like to start the substance of this address today, um, about dramatic art with you. So um, I, I think I'll call the, the title of this keynote, The Purpose of Playing, to get us there. Because what Jack did was play with us in the real sense of the word. He made, he made something which was conceptual, practical. He put it, he, and, he, and he invited us all to throw ourselves imaginatively and, and really into, into that, into a, into a particular world. Okay, so also those, we have drummer educators in the room, um, and I, I acknowledge you guys because every, well I'd say everybody who works in the profession is working in the profession because of people like you. Um, but you'll notice that that phrase, the purpose of playing, comes from Hamlet. It's a quote from the big guy himself, who was a very big believer in the power of dramatic art. Remember how, how beautifully he, he welcomes the players when they turn up? Right up until then, he's been a moody prick, you know? <laughs> Let's face it. <coughs> more than kin and less than kind. He's more friends with the audience than he is with anybody else when he turns up. But when the players turn up, when the actors turn up, he suddenly melts and becomes beautiful and warm. Um, so, often when, um, when dramatic artists and drama teachers you know, meet in these kind of circumstances that we're in right now, we feel compelled, just like Hamlet did, um, to declare the importance of what we do, like, it's under, like, like the art form's under some kind of pre-existing threat, like there's an underlying assumption that we need to validate our practice, that we have a purpose, a purpose of playing. You know? and, and so often it seems to, we seem to fall into a deficit conversation. And I blame Plato for that. Uh, it sounds a bit grand, but it is. It's absolutely Plato's fault. Um, <laughs> Ever since he excluded thespians from his model republic, um, describing us as degenerate mimickers, um, we've been fighting an uphill battle ever since that moment. <laughs> um, even poor Hamlet spends a good few dozen lines strenuously validating this thing that we do. He ends up even screaming at Polonius, the, the 
Did anyone imagine to catch the most recent production of it? Um, at, the, at the gardens. Um, he, uh, but Polonius com complains. Hamlet says, you know, make sure they're treated well. And Polonius says, uh, they'll be treated as much as they deserve. And Hamlet screams, God's bodkins, man, much better. And after all, um, one of the reasons for that, as he says, is after your death, you are better have a, to have a bad epitaph than their ill report while you live. All right, but it's Hamlet who says, what's the purpose of playing? He explains the purpose of playing to, people, to, to um, the players. And that's what, what, is, what is he referring to? Is there a purpose to playing? And we, call, we still call it a play, don't we? Go and see a play. And those of you who watch The Simpsons, was it Ham, uh, Homer? <laughs> it's one thing that hurts me about The Simpsons. I was watching it and, and Homer complained about something. He said, I've seen plays that are better than that. Yeah, plays. <laughs> but look, the good news is that there certainly is, um, is, a good, is a good reason and a good purpose for play. And I hope to spend the next 30 minutes or so um, outlining that to you. And hopefully turning our validation ship around to 480 degrees. So that rather than demand once again that the world acknowledge that dramatic art deserves a place at society's table, I'd like to assert in the strongest possible terms that without dramatic art, without playing, there would be no society. Um, and there probably wouldn't even be a table. So I'd like to take you on a time-traveling whistle-stop tour to demonstrate the ancient origins of our art form. Um, uh, and, uh, and which, which allows us, which gives us an ability to, to engage in conflict and risk under cooperative and imaginary circumstances. And that this particular skill that we've got is in fact the key evolu evolutionary mutation that has ensured our ongoing success as a species. Sounds grand, but um, I'm a true believer in it. And that our disposition for dramatic art that will almost, will almost certainly provide us a platform as we step into the frightening and risky future that some of us may already be a bit fearful of. So, here comes another grand claim. At every important juncture in the evolution of pro and progress of humankind, drama has been a key factor to our success and survival. So much so that I'd like to forward the argument that it would be more appropriate to call our species Homo ludens or Homo narrens than Homo sapiens. So that is that rather than being called the wise human, which is what separates us from the other ones, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, etc. Rather than being the wise human or the smart human, the thing, the key evolutionary uh, advantage that we've uh, evolved is our ability to play games and our ability to tell stories. Homo ludens and Homo narrens. So, humankind go through some massive changes um, evolutionarily, and I'd like to just grab maybe six or seven of these moments, and I'm going to call them cognitive revolutions, using parlance that is quite popular at the moment, especially those of you who might have come across Noah Yuval Harari's writings, Sapiens and Homo Deus, and those pieces. Um, so, let's, I'd like to go back in time further back than Uncle Jack took us even, and that was pretty far back. Um, 
I'd like to take us back to before we were actually humans, before we could, before we had language, um, right back to the Triassic period, which is um, when we were just beginning to evolve warm blood. So that's pretty far back. Um, it's a drama lecture. Um, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> um, so. Before the existence of mammals, our story was pretty basic, um, and we still have that brain inside us, don't we? Um, those of you who are familiar with, um, with uh, neurobiology, they talk about us human beings having the tri a triune brain, a brain that has three folds in it. A brain stem, which is the 300 million year old brain, the reason why I'm working my hand is that right on, we have a, a handy model for the human brain here, yeah, terrible. I'm a dad, so I'm allowed to make puns like that. Um, <laughs> If you imagine that this is your, this is your spine, and this, at the top of your spine is your brain stem, we have a 300 million year old brain that still exists inside us. Um, and that has all of those old pre-mammalian functions in them. So it's, it's, it's quite often called the survival state brain. It's the thing that makes you eat, sleep, have sex. Um, strangely, you want to smoke cigarettes, but who knows how that managed to get in there. But all of the really deep primal drives, the ones that are almost impossible to fight against. Have you ever tried to not sleep? Or have you ever tried to not eat? Or have you ever tried to not have sex with that person? You'll know what I mean. Old, old primal drives. And then over the top of that brain, about 200 million years later, another fold grew over the top which um, mammals grew. It's quite often called the limbic system. And if we had two thumbs, we could make a perfect little model, model of it here like that. So on top of this, our spine, we have an enlarged uh, bit of neural matter, which is the brain stem, which is responsible for our survival. And then a limbic system, which is also responsible for our survival. But does anybody here know what the limbic system is responsible for primarily? Emotions, yes? Sorry? Oh, yeah, okay. Emotions and social interaction, which is what mammals uh, specialize in. Those of you who um, tried to have a pet reptile knows that they're pretty hard to get to know. Um, and they turn on you. <laughs> and also you wake up at four o'clock in the morning with a strange dreadful fear after they've urinated, probably because we've, we've co-evolved with them and we're supposed to be frightened of them. Um, anyway, I digress. <laughs> Um, so, before the existence of mammals, our story was pretty basic. Oh, if you want to have a sense of how basic it is, when you drink alcohol, you anesthetize the higher order parts of your brain. Your brain stem, your limbic system, and then your neocortex, which is the 10 million year old fold that grew only just recently over the top of that, which humans have, dolphins have, most simians have. Um, but when you drink alcohol, you anesthetize the top order levels of your brain. And if you want to have a look at that, go out on Swanson Street on a Friday night at 2 o'clock in the morning. And what you'll see are human beings with anesthetized upper, upper order systems wandering around with brainstem responses, looking for things to eat, <laughs> looking for people to have sex with, and eventually finding somewhere to sleep. Oh, and some of you are fight. Those of you from the country will <laughs> relate to that quite well. Okay. But mammals evolved something very particular, which, which, which gave us an evolutionary advantage over reptiles, you know. We're, you know, thank God that meteor came and knocked all the big ones out, and then we competed with all the other smaller ones, and we had some key evolutionary advantages. And 
uh, anthropologists suggest that one of the key of one of the main ones, apart from us being able to associate with one another and look after one another and nurture one another, is that we were able to engage in play. And if you have a look, crocodiles are not very good at playing, and lizards aren't very good at playing, cockroaches. Some birds can, magpies can, can't they? So there are octopuses and a few other things can, can play. But mammals are the best at it. And, and we do it so well that we can actually play with any other kind of mammal. And that's how you get to know them, right? You sit down and you, and you engage in play. Um, but can I ask the, everyone here now, what possible evolutionary advantage could there be to playing? Socialization, maybe? Okay, so socialising, learning, learning to cooperate and interact with other people. Making yeah. rules and breaking rules. Good, making rules and breaking rules and finding boundaries. Yep. Creativity. Creativity, so actually... What, 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 creativity. Thank you. Yeah. Take my glasses off. Um, so creativity, which is what imaginatively engaging in, in possible things. Well, yeah. yes, yeah. through any discipline. Right. Any area. Yeah. Through science, through... Well, so all, all of this is, is, the, is, the, is the territory, and it's interesting that we still call um, writing for drama a play. Like, even, even on Netflix, it's still a screen play. So we acknowledge that what this particular art form that we do is a form of play, and it goes back 300 million years. Um, the, the anthropologists and biologists say that there are three key um, things that, that play do that give us an evolutionary advantage. One is that they, it trains us for unexpected events, which, all, which is what dramatic art still does. Another very key one is that it conditions us against fear responses. So we actually, when we go and see plays or when we play with somebody else, we're actually practicing mini versions of things that we're terrified of. So we, later on, when we actually deal with it in the real world, we can engage with it in a meaningful way, as opposed to just dropping into one of the brainstem responses, all those Fs, fight, flight, etc. Um, okay, so that's the second one, conditioning gets fear responses. And then the third one is that, uh, which you all mentioned, which is that it helps us engage in cooperative behaviours that benefit the group. And what they've discovered now in, in their study of, uh, of macaque monkeys, just recently, is that macaque monkeys who are well-parented, who, and that, what, what I mean by that is that the, the parents give their children a safe environment, those macaque monkeys tend to engage in much riskier play than, than monkeys that are not well-parented. And so they, they, they've got the confidence to actually go out there and try really zane, like they're the ones who will leap further in the, further in the branches, they're the ones who will try to get the more difficult fruit, etc. while they're playing. And, and, and they've discovered that those ones, the ones that get engaged in the most risky play because they're in the safest environment, are the ones that grow up to be the least hostile, the least anxious, and the most cooperative in the troop. I think there's something here, in, which is a lovely little metaphor for what drama educators are, I think, which is that drama educators do exactly this. You provide the safest possible environment for our young to engage in imaginative engagement in risky activities. So quite often, I mean, when I, when I, was, taught, when I was studying directing in England, um, one of my teachers said that what you should be doing as a director is creating the safest environment for the most dangerous explorations. And um, you can see that the proof is in the pudding for at least for macaque monkeys and we co-evolved with them. And so there's a good chance that providing a safe environment for risky play 
um, is, is one of those elements that will actually help uh, our, our young people engage in the world as leaders, be able to um, uh, yeah, have the confidence to, to, to interact with other people and, and take, take the big chances. All right. Um, so it's most basic pre-human level, the emergence of representational mimetic behavior, play, uh, gave us a great evolutionary advantage, which is to take calculated and tested risks to overcome our fear uh, and work together. And that's the reason, one of the reasons why we still want to go and, why we go home and just somehow want to watch the television, want to watch drama, somehow want to go and watch a play, because on an evolutionary level, we're pricked into doing it. We, you know, we'll, we'll spend lots and lots of money to go and engage in that um, because, of, because it's, 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 it's an evolutionary drive. Okay, so uh, that's us before we became humans. I'd <coughs> like to jump now to the next cognitive revolution. And ho but hopefully you'll see in that, that that that's dramatic art that we're engaging in there on that pre-human level. So the next cognitive revolution I'd like to talk about um, is a few hundred million years into the future. Um, still not here where we are yet, but into the Pleistocene era, which is the Ice Age, um, which only finished, what, 11,600 years ago, I think. Um, so, uh, in, the, in his book, Homo sapiens, by Noah Yuval Harari, uh, asks the question, have you ever noticed that there are loads of different other types of species? Like, there's lots of different types of turtle in the world. And there's lots of different types of um, monkey in the world. There's lots of different types of butterfly. There's astonishing diversity. But when it comes to humans, there's only one type. Now, the interesting thing is that that wasn't always the case. We actually uh, shared the Earth with a whole bunch of other homos, people, humans. Um, and. Uh, not only did we, did we share the, the earth with them, we, some of them we interbred with. So any, any, anybody here with um, Northern European heritage, um, there's a very, if you've got red hair particularly, there's a very high chance that you've got Neanderthal DNA in you. So it means that we interbred with them, especially Northern Europeans. So that, there goes the whole white supremacy argument out the window straight away, doesn't it? Um, so but, so we, we shared the earth with a whole bunch of different different types of humans. There was Homo heidelbergensis, Rudolfensis, Habilis, the tool using human, Floriensis, they're the ones that they discovered just um, outside of um, Indonesia that are about three, three and a half foot high. Somebody wanted to call them Homo, um, uh, homo hobbitus, but ended up with Floriensis. Homo erectus, the awkward standing human, uh, the Deniso Homo denisova, which is a brand new one, and of course, Homo neanderthalensis. Um, and in the olden days, when we called ourselves Homo sapiens, which we still do, but I'd suggest we should, we should change it. Um, in the olden days, we thought it was because we were smarter than them that gave us our evolutionary advantage. But uh, in, in sapiens, Noah Yuval Harari makes a very interesting point that there's about 80,000 years ago was when we stopped co-inhabiting co with those people. And I mean people. They were enough for us to be able to interact with them and have sex with them, right? So that means we were pretty close. We are in the same species. And if somebody was a Neanderthal person walked down the street to this day, he'd, he'd look a bit weird, or she'd look a bit weird, but not enough for us to call the cops. Okay. But something happened 80,000 years ago. And it's not 
an increase in computational ability. We now know that, uh, that Neanderthals had very high computational abilities. You don't survive an ice age without, being, without having your shit together. All you've got to do is look at the Russians and the Swedes for that. They have their act together, right? Because you've got to. All you've got to do is read their literature. It's all about getting your act together and getting on with one another, isn't it? Okay. Um, so we know that, that, that a lot of these different, we know a lot about the Neanderthals. We now know that they, they buried their dead. They, we also know that they buried their dead with flowers. There's even a suggestion that Neanderthals had culture and, and played musical instruments. So these were not the brutish um, cave creatures that we were told to, you know, led to believe when we were, in, when we were younger. Um, then they all disappeared around 80,000 years ago. Humans um, coming out of Africa, Homo sapiens, have been trying to get into Europe for ages, and they kept hitting the ice wall. Game of Thrones uses that. Um, they kept hitting the ice wall, not being able to come back. And, and there's evidence now that the, that, the, that the Neanderthals pushed Homo sapiens back a number of times, like over, over thousands and thousands of years, until eventually something happened. And here's the thing: it's not weapons, and it's not. Um, it's not our ability to, to engage in um, highly sophisticated and organized warfare. Uh, it's not that we were necessarily smarter or that we were kinder to our, to, our, to our kin. But in every single cave, human, Homo sapiens cave, they found, uh, uh, oh, dating back to that period, they found something that doesn't exist in Heidelbergensis, Rudolphensis, Habilis, Floriensis, Erectus, Denisova, and Neanderthal caves. They found something which anthropologists like to call the counterfactual object, which is a thing that cannot possibly exist or that doesn't already exist in the universe. So the most, the most famous one is, is a mammoth tusk which has been carved with half the body of a lion and half the body of a human, the Lohenmensch, um, what anthropologists will call a therianthrope, an impossible thing, a counterfactual object. And when those counterfactual objects start appearing, so it's not just the cave paintings, it's the impossible things, the things that do not exist in the, in the known world. When those things appear, all the other humans disappear, and Homo sapiens are the last ones left. So what is this counterfactual object, and what does it suggest? We already know that humans know how to play, and we know how to, how to um, engage in, in imaginative risk and, 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 and pretend risk, but now something else comes along. And I'd like to argue that this is actually the key to why dramatic art is the number one art form um, for humankind. It's what it is, is our ability to project imaginatively into the future. Our ability to imagine future fictions and then not only do that, but interact with them and test to see if they're any good or not. So Homo erectus, God bless him, um, would, might sit around a campfire and he might have the hots for the chief's daughter and think to himself, hmm, I'd really like to have sex with her because he's got a brainstem response like the, like the rest of us. But unlike Homo sapiens sapiens, who's able to go, hmm, if I do that, what are the possible outcomes? He might, A, B, C, D, or E, and actually dance through them all just while he's out smoking his cigarette and drinking his mead or whatever they had. <laughs> the erectus boat. Um, 
so what you actually so what what he would be able to so Homer Erectus wouldn't be able to think that all he'd be able to do is do it or not do it make a simple choice and then if he does it it's like oh great he gets to pass on his genes as the guy who likes to have sex with the chief's children right and off he goes and then there's a whole group of people who have a predisposition towards that but humankind can actually sit back and talk to one another and and then he might go out the back with his one of his friends and say I'm thinking about having sex with the chief's daughter what do you think and then for his best friend to go, not a good idea, mate. And now we have conflict, which is where we project ourselves into an imaginative future and there's a difference of opinion. And inside that difference of opinion, somewhere the best decision lies and possibly even the truth might lie. Okay. So that's the next evolutionary cognitive leap that, that was made. Now, Inside that, something else happened. Here's another thing to think about. What do you think the natural size for humans was to hang out in before we created civilizations and laws and you know, all of that sort of stuff? You know, chickens, let's start with chickens. What size, what size um, is natural for chickens to hang out in before they start fighting? Hectic. A hectic? <laughs> yeah, well, um, this is the thing, and they're discovering this now with, uh, with, with free range, uh, farming. The chickens like to hang out in clusters of six and a maximum group of around 30 thereabouts. Um, that's, that's, what, that's how they can self-regulate and self-organize and, and get their dominance hierarchies all structured out. Their pecking order it's called, right? That's chickens. Um, and then they kind of, they can, they can hit a, a period of homeostasis and carry on and be quite comfortable. Um, dolphins, it's about, uh, let me have a look, I wrote, I wrote down dolphins. 10, oh no, 30, 30 for dolphins. That's the natural size for their pod. Dogs, around 10. Chickens, six groups of six. Uh, chimpanzees, about 100 to 150. So they've got quite evolved. And that makes sense, they've got complex limbic systems. If you meet them, you can tell. They look back at you um, and you can relate to them. Human beings, we evolved to, have to be in groups of about 150 to 500 maximum. But, but, between 150 and 350 people, which is incidentally the number of friends that you actually have meaningful encounters with on Facebook, I'd like to suggest. Sure, you might have 1,500, but there's, your tribe and Facebook is usually around 150 to 300, because that's our natural default optimum group size that we evolved to have. It's also incidentally the best size to have as an audience. So as a theatre director, if once, as soon as my audience gets over 500, I know I have to start engaging different mechanisms to keep them interested. I have to start becoming more spectacular or having, having different mechanisms for holding the consciousness of 500 people together. Um, where the, the, the sweet spot for me is, a, is about 200 to 400 people in the audience. Um, and and I, I would like to suggest that that's because that's unnatural. But, um, Groupings, but we don't hang out in groups of 150 anymore most of the time, and that's because we were able, with this new um, mutation in, in our prefrontal cortex, to create imaginary worlds and imaginary fictions. And and we live in we live in a world almost entirely dominated by fictions. Um, so money is a fiction, right? Um, law is a fiction. We just made that stuff up. Um, it's a, these are all counterfactual elements. Um, human rights, it stings, but it's a fiction. The natural world has no, has no interest in human rights. That's us um, civilizing ourselves and, and, and making value, value statements on it. Um, 
and so we are driven by by ancient forces, and on top of that, those ancient forces are then uh, mediated by this new um, this new mutation that our brains have, which is that we're able to imagine impossible things, go into them, wander around inside, test them out, and then make value-laden decisions based on that, which has made us extraordinary creatures. And if you think um, that I'm making all of this up, have a look at, um, when, you, when you go to the airport next time, right? have a look at the best-seller list. And every, uh, I, I promise you, every single book in the top 20 in the best-seller list is an Ice Age concern. How do I, uh, so ro romance, which is how do I get a partner. Crime, which is how do we keep them, regulate the society that we're in. Um, war, monsters and heroes. And any, 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 work, any work of dramatic art that's terrifically successful has these fundamental Ice Age concerns embedded in them. We don't even know them, know that they're working on us, but sure enough, there they are. And it's dramatic art that has helped us in, interact with all of the, with, with this new with this new mechanism, and it's what has made us so such extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily successful creatures. Um, I'd like to jump now to the next to to, an, to a new cognitive revolution that, that kicked in, which is the invention of writing. So, human beings came around around 180,000 years ago. We had a cognitive revolution around 80,000 years ago, which really jump-started us and made us able to engage in fictions and hang around in larger communities, all that sort of thing. Um, and I've argued already that for 300 million years we've been playing in some way. Along comes writing. But writing is a real latecomer to human culture. Um, and in fact, many cultures didn't even need to develop it at all. Um, when, we look at the, when we look at the writing that did first emerge, uh, cuneiform writing, say from the Sumerians, um, none of that, well, very little of that writing is actually in, uh, stories. It's nearly all accounts. Most of the time it's just Frank owes Dave two obols for the sheep. That he, stuff that we couldn't remember. That's, that's, what, that's how writing evolved. So it's, when it, whenever people try to sort of trump drama for you, you know, when you're, when, you're a, when you're a dramatic practitioner, just remember that we've got 300,000 years jump on them. We've been doing this for a good chunk of time longer, and, and literature is very much a, a latecomer to the story. Um, it's fun, right? It's a fun thought, uh, especially the, yeah, the, the Plato folk. Um, so most most human culture still wasn't written down, even though we invented writing. And the reason why it wasn't written down is that most of most of our stuff exists, most of our culture existed in the form, and it still does in many indigenous cultures, exists in the form of, of, of song and verse and story. And the reason it exists in those forms is because it's easy to remember, because it's native to our brain state. We actually evolved that way. And that's why my daughter asked, begs me for a. Um, she begs me to tell her a story or sing her a song before she goes to bed at night. She doesn't beg me to outline the key, you know, important factors of the Franco-Prussian alliance or anything else. You know, she does. She, she, there's only one thing children want, and that's story and song. Um, and so there's a reason why story and song came late to writing. In fact, um, the first ones that were written down in, in the Western tradition, uh, of course, is, is Homer. But if you look at if you look at the writings of Homer, and I think Homer is actually a whole bunch of people just under a, you know, a sort of collective pseudonym of the name Homer. Um, 
that, that it's actually written as song. Now, in the Western tradition, something really big happened around 600 BC, which was right up until then, the vast majority of human culture came through with one person singing, one person telling the story. And so when we have a look at, um, when we have a look, say, at the opening of the Odyssey, the opening lines of the Odyssey are seen to be news of that infinitely cunning man who was blown off who was blown off course to the ends of the earth in the years after he plundered Troy. Now in that there's a couple of little clues about what happens next in dramatic art which changes everything. It changes our entire the, the entire social fabric that we exist in to this day. So in that what in the olden days what we used to do in the Western tradition is call for a god to enter us and then the god or the muse would enter us and speak through us as a vessel. You can hear it, sing to me muse is what, you, is what the, the speaker says the first time. That's one person. So one person would get out on stage in front of the audience and ask to speak on behalf of a god and then everyone like like right now this is the situation we're in right now we're not in a dramatic interchange we're in we're in actually a 600 pre 600 bc interchange right now with me talking and you listening right that's how that's that's how or that's how the vast majority of human culture operated especially in the form of storytelling until somebody called thespis stepped off the stage and that we'll, we'll, as drama educators, you all know who Thespis is, because we're, we're actually called thespians to this day. Um, and everybody, even the scientists and the Plato lovers, will call us, ah, thespians, eh? Yeah. Um, Thes Thespis did something absolutely astonishing, which was, for the first time in European history, possibly world history, stepped off the platform and turned, instead of, instead of absorbing the truth from above, from an infinite authority, from a god, stepped off stage, found somebody else and disagreed with them. So the protagonist stepped off stage. An agonist in, in ancient Greece was a, was a struggler or a wrestler. So all the wrestlers were called agonists. So the first agonist, the protagonist, was just the first guy to get, down, get off. The second to get off the stage, the second person to get off the stage was the antagonist, the second wrestler, the protagonist and the antagonist, and they would disagree. And that is the fundamental basis of drama as we know it, right? Which is one person comes into a room, another person comes into the room and they disagree. Conflict is the fundamental atom, the fundamental mechanism of, of dramatic art. In fact, Edward Albee, um, Edward, who wrote, who's a friend of Virginia Woolf, and, the goat of Ruth Sylvia, etc., um, was asked once to give his definition of a play, and he said, Character A says, My life would be so great if character B didn't exist. Character B knocks on the door. That's his definition of a play. <laughs> now, so some, but something extraordinary happens when, when, that, when Thespis did that, and that's why we still know this person's name. Because for the very first time, no longer were we hearing universal objective truth being delivered to us from the gods. Suddenly we were in a position where we were looking at two different people having different opinions. And then a whole bunch of things start to happen when you do that. The first thing that happens is that you have to empathize with one side or the other, with the protagonist or the antagonist. 
We tended to empathize with the first person, right? That's why we think the protagonist is the goody and the antagonist is the baddie. And we still call the baddie the antagonist, don't we? The anta and we call it antagonism, yeah. It's a, but it's just the, the person who disagrees. Um, so those two people would disagree. And then somewhere in that disagreement, a new idea of getting to the truth emerges, which is in the tension between those two people disagreeing. So we're no longer being told from above what, what truth is and what and what important and what's important to value. We actually watched watch from the audience ourselves and empathize with one or both positions, preferably both, and come out with a much richer understanding or a closer journey towards the truth. Now that is democracy. That's the that's the fundamental principle behind democracy, isn't it? That we have two opposing sides that fight against each other, and then we observe that, and somewhere inside all of that, we make a decision as to which is the better way to go. And so it's no accident that, that democracy and drama evolved at the same time, in 600 BC, in the same small place in the Mediterranean, in Athens. Um, and not only, not only uh, and I would like to argue, not only did democracy come out of Thespis's moment of stepping off the stage, um, not, uh, and drama emerged from that, but the seeds for the scientific method also emerged from that, which is that you put forward something and you wait for it to get knocked down. And then in, and, and inside that cooperative conflict, inside the idea that you're going to fight against somebody else without killing them, just disagreeing with them, so engaging in, in, um, in cooperative conflict with one another, we can actually get to a closer idea of the truth. And that's where drama, dramatic art, really starts to kick in and influence the rest of society. So, I mean, my dad's a geologist, and um, you can hear in the, way, in the way that I look at things that I'm, I'm still influenced quite a lot by his scientific way of thinking. But, but one of my favorite things now, whenever he sort of likes to, because I still have to argue the point that drama's worthwhile to him, uh, alas, but we all do, right? There's a laughter, laugh of recognition in the audience. Um, I like to just give him this little mini lecture about the fact that in our entire social reality, our political system, our, our like Western civilization and the Enlightenment is based entirely, I would argue, on the fact that human beings are able to think dramatically. These ancient underpinnings that I've been talking about now, which are the, the human ability to play, or the mammalian ability to play, um, the human ability to project into an impossible or unknown future, and now our ability to engage in cooperative disagreement with one another in a way that do doesn't force us to just fight and kill each other, um, is the, are the core underpinnings of, of good dramatic art. And ever since my, I was awakened to this way of thinking, it's completely changed the way that I, that I interact with, with, um, with actors, the way that I interact with playwrights, um, so working as a, as a dramaturg for many years, a playwright in Australia, the first thing I would do is sit down with people and see how many of those Ice Age concerns they've attended to. Um, because if you do, then there's a very good chance that A, it won't be visible, and B, um, it'll be terrifically successful. How many of you, for example, are, like, are aware that, of the fact that Star Wars and Harry Potter are identical films? I mean, beat for beat, character for character, identical. 
The reason we don't notice that, we don't see it, is because it's, it's inside our substrate, our psychological substrate, the, 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 the cognitive functions that we've already inherited in us. But, but if I can just quickly run through that idea of, 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 um, of those two films being the same. There's a young orphan who lives in a boring place with an uncle and aunt that don't really get him. Um, he's, he, he's got too many chores and he doesn't feel like he's having much fun there. Um, and he thinks maybe, maybe he does belong to another place. He's got a yearning to go somewhere else. Suddenly out of nowhere, somebody with a beard turns up <laughs> out of nowhere and says, oh, you actually belong to a much more interesting place. And what's more, your parents, who have been hiding you from, from, from a baddie who hated your parents, and, um, and we need you now. We need you to come. We need you to come into the, this, uh, this interesting place right now. Um, otherwise, the interesting place might be destroyed. Um, and then the, the young person says, well, I'm just a... Uh, Hobbit slash um, farm boy from Tatooine slash boy in suburban London, etc. And um, what does he have to do? He has to. He has to um, ha oh, sorry. Before then, he gets given an instrument, doesn't he? A magical instrument, some kind of tool that he has to learn how to use. And guess what? The key to learning how to use it is having faith in yourself. So you have faith in yourself. And the first thing you need to do to have faith in yourself is make a leap of faith by, by crossing a threshold from the ordinary world that you're in into the amazing one. This is all film theory, of course, um, which I'm shooting out at you at high speed. But you have to cross over it in, into another world. And the way you do that is by having faith, right? So you close your eyes and you push your shopping trolley through that brick wall, or you jump in the Millennium Falcon, or you follow Gandalf into the scary wood where uh, Hugo Weaving is. Uh, and all, Next thing you know, you're in a world with friends and enemies all over the place. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. There's some very, very specific people, friends and enemies inside this universe. There's a, there's a, there's a beautiful girl um, who's very, very smart, who you think might be the love interest, but turns out not to be, and cannot, absolutely cannot be. Um, there's also a maverick friend who's really scruffy and sort of um, makes loads of mistakes and has an intelligent pet. And, um, and who, who, who somehow manages to fall on his feet the whole time. Um, there's also all sorts of other interesting characters. There's, there's oddball twins, um, you name it. Uh, there's also baddies who are tiny little versions of the really big bad baddie who, of course, wears a cape um, and usually has a mask on and quite often you're not allowed to say their name. Etc. Um, Etc. Et so I've just gone through uh, the, the first 15 minutes of both of those films plus um, uh, plus Lord of the Rings, plus you could, and then of course those of you who've done film theory know that you could also add um, uh, Fight Club, Babette's Feast, you name it, onto that particular pattern. And the reason it's invisible to us is because it taps into our substrate, our inherited, pre-existing drives that we've, that we've, that we've evolved to have. Um, okay. but I'll shoot through them very quickly because after, after the extraordinary thing that Thespis did, theatre exploded and went not only just across uh, uh, ancient Greece, it also went right across into Europe. Of course, there was a dark age in between there for a while. Um, but then around, around 1440 to 1599, there was a whole new uh, cognitive revolution which we know as, of as the Renaissance. Um, and in the Renaissance, of course, with the, with the uh, evolution of the printing press, people were able to think 
in private a lot more and have much more complex thoughts than they normally did. Up until the invention of the printing press, the vast majority of reading was done out loud. So a little example of that is that, is that um, Julius Caesar, for example, um, everybody thought he, would, he, he had um, magical abilities because he would read in silence. And people used to sneak in and look at him, and look at him under, you know, through the gap in the tent and talk about the fact that he read without speaking. So reading, without, so reading was literally just a, me a mechanism for you to speak up until the printing press really kicked in and then that's when some really serious thinking started to happen, people sitting on their own, um, and coming up with very highly concentrated ideas. Now why do I mention that in relation to dramatic art? In 1599 a play came out about a young prince who goes to Wittenberg University. Wittenberg University is the university that Martin Luther, well, is the town that Martin Luther King, sorry, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King, excuse me, Martin Luther came from. Um, and and one of the one of the um, birthplaces of um, of the Renaissance and also of the age of discovery that we that we go into. There's a the Shakespeare wrote a play about a character for the first time in human history who stands outside of the matrix, stands outside of the whole mechanism that we're expected to follow, and for the first time ever stops and looks at the audience and says, "What if I don't?" take part in this? What if I don't participate? What if I make another choice instead? And that's what the story of Hamlet is. It's the first individual in, in, in Western society engaging with an audience in a conversation. And suddenly this conflict doesn't just go that way, it goes that way as well. So you can see what Shakespeare is doing by um, inviting us to have a very, very robust conversation, not only about ethics and and society and good, good government, but also a, a, a robust conversation with ourselves about reality frameworks. Hamlet's first line, I think I mentioned, isn't to anybody on stage, it's to the audience, it's an aside. So the first thing he says is a little more than kin and less than kind, and then joins in on all of the shenanigans that's going on on stage. So, dramatic art, once again, it's, and that's the reason why Hamlet is the big play, because it gave us the key to be able to navigate our way through the modern world. There are many other cognitive revolutions that follow, and um, alas, I don't have time to talk in depth with you about them, except to say that um, we're still in most of the ones that follow. We're still uh, tumbling through um, modernism, you know, Edward, um, Edward Albee, Ray Lawler. Um, Arthur Miller, etc., and we're, and that's still tumbling through postmodernism now, and we're all getting tangled up inside all of these different isms that are occurring. Um, but once again, we have playwrights who are there to help us build and grow the navigational tools so we can actually work, function together as a society using our, our inherited abilities. So we have Alfred Jarry, Carol Churchill, Sarah Kane, all of the postmodern and post-dramatic writers that are that, 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 um, that exist, you know, wonderful ones from Melbourne like Maura, Maura Finucane and De Declan Green, all of which are coming together to help us make sense of the astonishing speed that we've evolved over the past 400 years. And now we're in a new age, the age of networked consciousness, and a new age, and there's an anxiety that's coming up again. And as I mentioned in the very early stages, when we um, when we play riskily, it reduces our anxiety. 
And I've got a feeling that dramatic art will, will again be the way that we can reduce our anxiety and explore the way out and the most, and, the, and for us to be able to make the best decisions as we come into this new age of networked consciousness. Because after all, dramatic, going to see a play is, is the ancient way of, of networking consciousness. And a little example of that is when you go and see a film, which it works psychologically but not necessarily communally on you, on your consciousness. If you go and see a film and the cinema's empty, it's okay, isn't it? Fact, in fact, quite a, quite a lot of us go, yes, I can watch it for my own. Um, but if you go and watch a play or a ballet or an opera and the, and the auditorium is empty, something in you sinks. Some, some part of you knows that the event's not going to function. And I think that's because we are evolved to have networked consciousnesses. And so we already have the abilities built into us to be able to, to have varying opinions and still enter one particular place, go through an experience, change, and come out in some way a little bit closer together, as Jack Charles wonderfully put it. Um, so, at each stage of human development, dramatic art has harnessed and focused our ability to cooperatively engage in conflict to engage the riskiest of possibilities in a safe context so we can get closer to a deeper truth, a more plural unity, and a less anxious and more cooperative world. Um, so even though the television and internet may be loudly declaring that it's the end of the world as we know it, because of drama, I feel fine. I'll sign off with um, exactly what Hamlet said towards the purpose of playing. I think it says it all. So Hamlet says, the purpose of playing, whose end, both at the first and now, was and is, to hold, as twere, the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her own feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. part of my brain it is. Um, and actually it's interesting, I think you've just um, given us an extra argument for those people who challenge us as drama educators to get really about subjects, say well actually we're, we're here because of drama, so um, thank you for that. Um, yeah, um, If you would like to find out more about 16th Street Theatre, you can go to 16thstreet.com.au. That is 16thstreet.com.au. That is all from us at The Aside. A huge thanks to all the people who made recording this keynote possible. There are a load of episodes in the bank, including episodes recorded live at conference, so go through our bank of episodes to find one that piques your interest. Feel free to email us at asidepodcast at outlook.com if you have any questions. Thank you to Eltham College, Drama Victoria, Aaron Searle, and of course, thank you for listening. <laughs>